Bibles to Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 8, and this morning the lesson is Jesus the servant. Last week we saw him as Jesus the teacher because he was doing a lot of teaching in chapter 7. Here we see him serving a lot in chapter 8. So let's begin with verses 1 through 9 of chapter 8. And it says, In those days the multitude, being very great and having nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the multitude because they have now continued with me three days and I have nothing to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their own houses, they will faint on the way for some of them have come from afar. Then Jesus' disciples answered him, how can one satisfy these people with bread here in the wilderness? He asked them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven. So he commanded the multitude to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and he gave thanks and he broke them. And he gave them to his disciples to set before them. And they set them before the multitude. They also had a, a few small fish. And having blessed them, he set them also before them. So they ate and they were filled. And they took up seven large baskets of leftover fragments. Now those who had eaten were about 4,000. And he sent them away. And immediately got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Now, as we all know, um, there are always people who try to find mistakes in the Bible or contradictions. And they often confuse this miracle here, the feeding of the 4,000, with the feeding of the 5,000 that's found in all four Gospels. Only Matthew and Mark record this feeding of the 4,000. But it's not hard to see the difference of the other miracle of the multiplying of the bread and the fish. The first miracle, that is the feeding of the 5,000, took place in Galilee, near Bethsaida. And it involved mostly Jews. This miracle, the feeding of the 4,000, took place near Decapolis. And it involved mostly Gentiles. In the first miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus uh, started with five loaves and two fish. While here, with the 4,000, he had seven loaves and a few fish. The feeding of the 5,000 had been with him one day. The 4,000 had been with him three days. Twelve baskets of leftovers were collected after the 5,000 were fed. Only seven baskets collected after the 4,000 were fed. Once again, here in Mark 8... 4,000 were fed. And, and like I said, if you search the scriptures, you'll find the answers. All right? The Bible is inerrant, infallible. There are no contradictions. Uh, there are questions, but some of those questions we can't answer. And if God wanted us to know, he would have answered them. So we also see in this chapter the blindness and unbelief of the disciples. Of course, it's not the first time we've seen that. I mean, had they already forgotten the miracles that Jesus performed with the feeding of the 5,000? And, you know, sometimes we we see them and we see the wonderful things that they've experienced with the Lord and how long they've been with them and the things he taught them and said to them. And and then they, you know, they have this kind of failure, if you will, this 
this this defect in 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 their belief and and we go we shake our heads and we go man what you know how could these guys be so doubtful how could they question the lord but we can't be too hard on them because sometimes even mature christians have doubt even after they've experienced had a great experience with god and how many times you know have we forgotten the mercies of the lord The psalmist said, our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies. The multitude of your mercies. Which in 1 Chronicles, it says, remember his marvelous works, which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. We're we're encouraged to remember. And and again, the psalmist says that, that, you know, we're, we're, his mercies are, are, you know, are every day. We're loaded with them every single day. Blessings, loaded, God gives us every single day. And again, he says, I will remember the works of the Lord. Surely I will remember your wonders of old. I also meditate on all your work and talk of all your deeds. So, again, the Bible speaks about the many mercies of God. All the people ate, it says here, and they were filled. And the word filled means they ate to their heart's content. It means ate to their heart's content. So that wasn't just a snack. It wasn't just something to tie them over till they got home. They fed until their, they ate till their hearts were content. And then they collected seven baskets of leftovers. In the feeding of the 5,000, like I said, there were 12 baskets. And we need to remind ourselves all the time that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and for what he did back then, he'll do now and he'll do tomorrow. And Jesus has the solution to every kind of problem you'll ever have. All we have to do is trust him, give him our all, and obey him. Now, verses 10 through 21, we see now, as we go on, and we're going to, you know, look at this closer now. In verses 10 through 21, again, it says, Now, immediately they got into the boat with his disciples and came to the region of Dalmanutha. Then the Pharisees came out and began to dispute with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven, testing him. But he sighed, he, he sighed deeply in his heart and he said, why does this generation seek a sign? Assuredly, I say to you, no sign shall be given to this generation. And he left them and getting into the boat again, departed to the other side. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, that is Jesus charged them saying, take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said seven. So he said to them, how is it you do not understand? So now, the, the 4,000, they've all eaten. And he sends them away in verse 9. And then in verse 10, he quickly gets into a boat with his disciples. And he goes to the area of Dalmanutha, which is on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Then... Like many other times before, here comes the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they're coming to question Jesus. They're coming to debate him. 
And they wanted a sign from heaven testing his claim to be from God. They want proof that he was God. They want proof that that he is who he said he was. They they said, we want to see if you really are who you say you are, Jesus. Now, they just ignored the earthly miracles that he performed, like healing a sick person, as if that had never happened. What they wanted was for Jesus to do something spectacular and sensational. Maybe to bring down a lightning bolt or to hear a voice from heaven. Jesus had already rejected the devil's temptation in the wilderness to dazzle men into the kingdom. And it's pretty sad when God's religious leaders should be so hard-hearted and spiritually blind. Their desire for something spectacular and sensational was just more proof of their unbelief because, you see, faith doesn't ask for signs. Faith doesn't ask for proof. If you enter the kingdom of God through these conditions, that is, through signs, then faith as a personal decision is impossible. You see, God has his signs, but they're not the ones that require, that, that unbelief requires. Or if you have to be reasoned into the kingdom of God, you can be reasoned out of the kingdom of God. That is, if somebody can talk you into believing in Christ, somebody can talk you out of it as well. It has to be a conviction. I know that I know. Hebrews tells us, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That is, faith is unseen reality. So you see, if what you believe about Jesus isn't a faith, then it it doesn't please God because Hebrews tells us without faith, it's impossible to please God. Faith is confidence in God that leads to obedience to God. And true faith is based on what God says and it's demonstrated in what we do. You know, to say I have faith and then, you know, not show it in my life, there's a contradiction. Faith turns promises God's promises into reality. And true faith takes God at his word. And it's satisfied with the witness of the Spirit inside the Holy Spirit. He he brings that conviction. And and we bear witness with the Spirit that that our faith is is a conviction, not just something that, that I hold. Warren Wiersbe said this. He says, immature faith needs signs for reassurance. Mature faith takes God at his word and obeys. Asking God to do some specific thing to verify his will is evidence of unbelief. Jesus was grieved, really grieved and disappointed that the religious leaders wanted a sign to prove that Jesus was the son of God. And and Jesus, it says in verse 12, he deeply sighed when they asked for a sign. You know, he was bummed, I'm sure. And he tells them no sign will be given to this generation. So what Jesus does next suggests unbelief cut men off from Christ. What does it say in verse 13? He left them. He left them. You know what he said? Remember, he, in, that, in one city, he couldn't do many works because of their unbelief. Jesus had promised only one sign. And that was the sign of Jonah. Luke eleven twenty nine 29 says this, And while the crowds were thickly gathered, to, uh, thickly gathered together, he began to say, This is an evil generation. It seeks a sign, and no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah the prophet. And that sign and that prophet was Christ himself. And the, and the signs were the crucifixion, the burial, and the resurrection. The proof that Jesus is who he says he is was the fact of his own death, 
burial and resurrection. It was prophesied. He spoke it that he would die, that he would be buried, and that he would resurrect it after three days. A holy life and the manifestation of perfect love are for sure, are, are surer signs, far surer signs, that one has been filled with the Spirit of God than any physical evidence. Verses 14 through 21 now, we see the leaven of the Pharisees. Verse 14. Now the disciples had forgotten to take bread, and they did not have more than one loaf with them in the boat. Then he charged them, saying, Take heed, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they reasoned among themselves, saying, It is because we have no bread. But Jesus, being aware of it, said to them, Why do you reason because you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive nor understand? Is your heart still hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember that when I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of fragments did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. Also, when I broke up, when I broke the seven for the four thousand, how many large baskets full of fragments did you take up? And they said, Seven. So he said to them, How is it that you do not understand? Now, while Jesus and the disciples are crossing the sea to Galilee, or south the Sea of Galilee, headed to Dalmanutha, Jesus taught the disciples an important spiritual lesson. Because it seems like they were almost as blind as the Pharisees. The disciples were having a private discussion about their food supply because somebody forgot to bring bread. You know, the, who's to blame? Peter, did you forget it? John, well, you know, I thought you were getting out. But, you know, they had no bread. It must have really grieved the Lord to see that. Because, again, these, these are his hand-picked helpers. But yet, they were so spiritually dull. I mean, Jesus had fed over 10,000 people two times. But I guess that didn't leave much of an impression on the disciples. But the bottom line is, why should they be worried about bread and argue at all over bread, one loaf of bread, when you have Jesus in the boat? Because God's tendency, people have a tendency to forget their blessings. Again, the psalmist said in Psalm 103 too, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits or blessings. And the psalmist said in Psalm 68, 19, who daily loads us with benefits or blessings. You see, the Lord meets our needs. But when the next problem comes, what do we do? We start worrying again. We start complaining or we get fearful. As long as we're with Jesus, we can be sure that he will take care of us. Now, the real lesson here had to do with leaven, not bread. Leaven is a yeast. And in the scriptures, leaven is consistently a type of sin. Because sin, like leaven, is small. And what did Paul say? A little leaven leavens the whole lump. So a sin, like leaven, is small and it's hidden. But it spreads and pretty soon it will infect the whole thing. The Bible uses leaven as a symbol of false doctrine in Galatians 5, 1 through 9. Or a symbol of unjudged sin in 1 Corinthians 5. Also, a symbol of hypocrisy in Luke 12, 1. But here, Jesus likened them about the teaching of the false doctrine of the Pharisees and the followers of Herod. Because, you see, the Herodians were a worldly group who catered to Herod. And they accepted the Roman way of life. And they saw in Herod and his rule the promised kingdom 
of the Jewish nation. But you see, if this false teaching of, the Herod, of Herod, of the Herodians, got into the hearts and the minds of the disciples, it would infect them. And it would pollute the truth that Jesus was preaching and that Jesus had given them to preach about himself and the kingdom. You see, that's why we can never be too careful about listening for and avoiding false doctrine. We need to know what we're listening to. We need to know what we're being taught. But if you don't know the Bible, how are you going to know? You just sit there in a daze and you just listen. Oh, that, that was great. But was it, was it right on? Was it biblical? Was it the gospel? We need to know so that we can, we can run you know, if it's false doctrine. It doesn't take much for a church or individual before it will grow and, and infect everything. It doesn't take much sin. All right? It doesn't take much sin for a church or individual uh, before it will grow and infect everything. Jesus warned them. He said, beware. I don't know if you saw in the news the other day about this. this uh, uh, he calls himself a, a prog- progressive pastor in a church in Nashville. This is what he said. This is what he's telling his congregation. The Bible is not inerrant or infallible. It can't live up to impossible modern standards. In other words, it can't, it can't live up to what, how we're living and what the culture is today. It, it, is, it can't fit our need. He said the Bible is not the word of God. It is not self-interpreting. It is not a science book. It is not an answer and rule book. It is not inerrant or infallible. And the church claimed the Bible is a product of community, a library of texts, multivocal, a human response to God, living and dynamic, and added as progressive Christians were open to the tensions and inconsistencies of the Bible. Hey, we are Bible-believing Christians, not progressive Christians. That's the only title we go by, plain and simple. Because Christian today has become pretty generic, meaning several different things. Are you a Bible-believing Christian? It is, it is kind of a shocking statement, but not so much. Okay, it's, like I said, uh, there seems to be this so-called progressiveness today that is infecting evangelical churches. The people are buying into the culture of today. They're buying into what's being passed is Okay. And it's being accepted. Why? Because the majority says so. The majority believes in these things. If the Bible is not the word of God, then we don't have anything to stand on. We have no anchor. We have no solid foundation. We have nothing to keep us from being tossed to and fro like immature children, Paul said. And he said in Ephesians 4.14, we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. This is why we need to be promoting the Bible because it is the never changing word of God. That is what you build your life on or you will be blown all over the place. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus Christ is the incarnate word. Jesus Christ was the word made flesh. The word was not a hypothetical, 
theoretical, speculative idea or philosophy, but a real person who could be seen, touched, and heard. And Christianity is Christ, and Christ is God. That is what we stand on. Therefore, the word is the same yesterday, today, and forever. It never needs to be revised. We don't change the word of God to meet the changing standards of society. The word begins to change social standards by changing the people within those standards. We have to fight and we have to stand up for the word of God because people's lives are falling apart today and God really does have answers for all of life's questions and problems. And that's why we need to preach the gospel in all of its undiminished truth. Because there's power to change in the word of God. Verse 22 through 26, as Jesus heals now the blind man. And Jesus came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to him and begged him to touch him. So he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. And when he had spit on his eyes and put his hands on him, he asked him if he saw anything. And he looked up and he said, I see men like trees walking. Then he put his hands on his eyes again and made him look up. And he was restored and saw everything clearly. Then he sent him away to his house, saying, Neither go into the town nor tell anyone in the town. So someone who had, who had faith in Jesus Christ brought this blind man to Jesus. This, the, the, the unique thing about his healing is that the healing didn't happen. It happened gradually and not instantly. Jesus took the blind man by the hand and he led him out of town. And then he spit, it says in the scriptures, on, on his eyes. But the word literally is into He spit into his eyes. And that's because spit at that time was thought to have healing properties. And then it says he laid his hands on the man. Jesus laid his hands on the man. And then he asked the man if he saw anything. And the man answered back to Jesus, "I, I actually see people. They look like trees to me. Only they walk. The man could see, but he couldn't see clearly. And for some reason, the man wasn't ready for instant sight. So Jesus restored him slowly. And then it says that Jesus put his hand on his eye, his eyes, and again made him look up. And then his eyesight was fully restored. And now he could see everybody clearly. And the work was precise and it was complete. And then Jesus tells him, like he told others, don't go into town nor tell anyone in town what happened here today. He didn't want the publicity that he would get. Jesus didn't want to be known as a miracle worker. Verses 27 through 33, we see Peter's confession now. It says, Now Jesus and his disciples went out to the towns of Caesarea Philippi, and on the road he asked his disciples, saying to them, Who do you say that I am? So they answered, John the Baptist. But some say you're Elijah, and others say you're one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Notice how he makes it personal now. It doesn't matter what others say. It matters what you think. Peter answered and said to Jesus, you are the Christ. Then Jesus strictly warned them that they should tell no one about him. And he began to teach them the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And after three days rise again. Jesus spoke this word openly. And then Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine Peter rebuking Jesus? But when he had heard, but when Jesus had turned around and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. And he said, Peter, get behind me, Satan, for you are not mindful of the things of God, but of the things of men. 
You know, if, if I was to come up to you and say, hey, what do people say about me? You'd be going, what's up with this guy? It's kind of strange here, you know? You'd think it's, you know, I'd be arrogant and, and, you know, whatever. But you see, what people say about us really doesn't make much difference. Because you see, we're not that important. But what people say and believe about Jesus Christ, that's what's really important because he is the son of God and he is the only savior of sinners. You see, what you say about Jesus is a matter of life or death. You need to know what to say. Because you are either going to drive them away or you're going to draw them to Christ. Salvation or hell. It's really important that we know what we're saying to them and that we're witnessing them to them properly. It's amazing that the huge number of different opinions that people have about Christ then as well as today. You know, they said, they said, well, some think you're John the Baptist or you're Elijah or one of the one of the prophets. Some even think you might be Jeremiah. But in his words and his works. Jesus gave every evidence, every sign to the people that he was the son of God, the Messiah. And they still didn't get the message. And instead of persistently seeking out the truth. The the people listened to what other people said about Jesus. And that's exactly what's happening to the world today. They are listening to what others say about Jesus. They followed the crowd, just like everybody today is following the crowd. Be careful when it comes to following the crowd. Those people had opinions instead of convictions, and this is what led them astray. You need to have a conviction about Jesus Christ. You see, a belief holds you. I'm sorry, a, a belief is something you hold. A conviction is something that holds you. I know that I know. The Spirit has bore witness that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And I believe that with all my heart, soul, and mind. Because if you listen to the crowd, and you follow the crowd, and you, you listen to the majority, which everybody says, well, everybody, can't, that many people can't be wrong. I tell you what, you're gonna, you follow the crowd, you listen to the crowd, they're liable to lead you straight into hell. In Noah's day, there were about two million people that mocked the message of Noah. All the way till the day that the flood began, the rain began. Two million people was, mocked the preaching of, of, of judgment and of the rain and of the coming flood. But when the rain started and the floods came, people weren't laughing anymore. And two million people, the popular opinion, the popular consensus, the crowd, two million people died because they didn't take the message of God's word serious. And people do that today. Only we, we, you talk to them about the rapture and that's when, you know, they, that's where they laugh. You really believe millions of people are just going to disappear? Mm-hmm. And they mock and they laugh. And they go away, you know, with their little jokes and what they think. But again, 8 million people, 8 people were saved. 
Only eight people were saved who believed that the judgment of God was coming. And then Jesus gets personal with the disciples. He forces the disciples to say what they think. You see, and our spiritual well-being doesn't depend upon what other people say and what they believe about Jesus. But what's important is what we ourselves believe about Jesus Christ. You are not saved because of your parents or your friends and what they believe in Christ. You are saved when you yourself believe in Christ. Peter's confession was bold. It was uncompromising, just like ours should be. He said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And no matter how pleased Jesus was with what Peter said with his confession, it's understandable why Jesus told them not to tell anybody about him. First of all, the disciples still had a lot to learn about what it meant to follow Jesus. And if they went out and told everybody that Jesus was the Messiah, it could result in a political uprising, which would, bring, which would do more harm than good. So now they had confessed their faith in Christ. And the disciples were ready now for what Jesus wanted to tell them. That Peter, disciples, the Son of Man must suffer many things. In other words, the one who came to do the will of the Father, it's necessary for him to suffer. I'm going to Jerusalem where I'm going to die on a cross. But to think that the invincible Christ would be rejected and killed was totally beyond Peter's understanding. I mean, Peter had heard everything that he said up to the point where Jesus said, after three days, I'd rise again, huh? That's when he just, you know, couldn't hear anything else. What are you talking about? This had to be, this had to have been even a surprising announcement to the disciples. Because it made no sense to them. Because, you see, if Jesus is Messiah, if he's the son of the living God, as they confess, then they would, why would the religious leaders want to kill him? Why would they reject him? Why, why would they crucify him? Because the Old Testament scriptures promised the Messiah who would defeat all of their enemies and set up his glorious kingdom for Israel. You see, to Peter and the disciples, there was something wrong with this picture here. Something wrong in the disciples' mind. And the disciples are totally confused right now. And Peter, as expected, was the one who spoke up for the group. One minute, Peter's having a revelation from God and confessing you know, his faith in Jesus Christ. You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God, Lord. The next thing, he's, he's thinking like an unbeliever and he's expressing the thoughts of Satan. This shows us something here in, in, in this dialogue. It's a warning. You see, when when we argue with God's word, we open ourselves to the door of Satan's lies. The minute we begin to doubt God's word, Satan gets a foothold. That's That's what happened in the garden. Did God really say? And Eve just walked right into it. Peter started rebuking Jesus. And his rebuke came because of a lack of knowledge of God's will. Peter Peter didn't yet understand the relationship between suffering and glory and the cross and the crown. Jesus' reply to Peter must have been a shocker. Jesus turns away from Peter and he looks at the disciples and he said, Get behind me, Satan. I mean... Why was the Lord's rebuke so strong? 
Because once again, Jesus heard the voice of Satan saying, hey, you don't have to go to the cross. Satan was trying to get Jesus to sidestep the cross. And Satan does that to us every day. He wants you to shortcut the cross. The cross in your life. Pick up your cross and follow me. Satan's always trying to get us to shortcut the cross. First, the, Warren Wiersbe said, first the suffering, then the glory. First the cross, then the crown. First the sacrifice, then the song. He said, remember that the next time you're tempted to take the easy way. And, and, and there isn't any more horrible attack by Satan than when he attacks you using somebody close to you. Like Peter was with Jesus. To use somebody who loves you. And, and uses somebody that we think seeks only our good. Satan has no boundaries. Peter didn't have the divine mind, but rather the human mind. Jesus said, you are not on the side of God, but of man, Peter. They were following Satan's philosophy of glory without suffering, and instead of God's philosophy of suffering turned into glory. You know, Satan tried that in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. Took him up on a pinnacle and he said, look, look at all the kingdoms. He says, I'll give them to you. Just bow down and worship me. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. I'll give them to you. Oh, yeah. You see, he was trying to get Jesus to shortcut the cross. Whatever philosophy you accept is going to determine how you will live and how you will serve and who you will serve. Verses 34 through 38. Now he speaks about the cost of leadership. Verse 34. When he had called the people to himself with his disciples also, Jesus said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the, into, in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Here Jesus teaches the disciples, or the people I should say, what he was teaching the disciples. There is a price to pay for true leadership, discipleship. Christ's principles of service are certainly higher than what most Christians like and want to participate in. You, may, you, know, you demand these requirements of many church people and, and they will strongly complain. You know, that's too fanatical. That's too extreme. Jesus knew the crowds were only following him to see what they could get from him. And curiosity or, or, or just to see the miracles. But most of them were not willing to pay the price to become true disciples. Somebody said too many Christians want to enjoy the thrill of feeling right, but are not willing to endure the inconvenience of being right. And Jesus made it clear to the people that the servant is not above his Lord. 
And if the Son of Man was to suffer rejection and death, whoever would come after me, he said, must first deny himself. To follow, in the, to follow and serve the Lord Jesus requires selflessness. A selfish person will never serve or follow Jesus well because, you see, a, selfless, a selfish person will not deny themselves. And unfortunately, that's the way most people live. It's all about me. It's all about self. Me first. So Jesus said, if you want to follow, come after me, you have to deny yourself. And then he said, you have to take up your cross. Now, the cross in that day was an instrument of death. The cross speaks of suffering in service. And if you're going to do your duty for God, sooner or later, you're going to meet up with the cross in suffering. But a good servant won't stop serving just because suffering for God is part of the service. So he says, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself. You have to pick up your cross and then follow me. Those are the two requirements before following him. Deny yourself, take up your cross. Now you can follow me. Service is focused on Jesus. And to serve Jesus, you must follow him and you must be where he is or else you won't be able to, you won't be there to serve him when he needs your service or wants your service. This means you have to be devoted to Jesus to serve him. Following Jesus has to do with our devotion to him. If devotion is lacking, our service will be lacking. We must have a, a determined, decisive mind that I am going to be a would-be follower of Jesus and I must say no to myself and I must carry his cross. And this must lead to a continuous relationship following Christ. It was, it was, as, as, it was as if Jesus said, if you want to be my disciples... You must begin to live as men on the way to the gallows. Think about that. He says, if you're going to follow me, you have to follow me all the way to the gallows. A call to follow Jesus is a call to die. Like it was in, in, in chapter, like chapter 6 of John, verse 66, when he was speaking about him being the bread of life. And for people to follow him. A lot of the people, the crowd were saying, oh, this, is, this is too hard to understand. And it says, they went away and they followed him no more. It says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and they walked with him no more. And he said to his, to his 12, he says, are you guys going to go too? You see, for those who may have felt that the cost of discipleship was too high... Jesus had, one, had more to say about the cost of refusing discipleship. He said in verse 35, whoever desires to save his life will lose it. An apostate might save his life by denying the Son of Man in this sinful generation. But he would lose his soul. And if in the process, he, Jesus said, if he should gain the whole world, what does he profit if he loses his soul? When somebody has paid the ultimate penalty and forfeited their soul, Jesus said, what will he give in exchange for his soul? But no matter how great his possessions may have been, he'll have nothing to buy it back with. 
And then Jesus said, in contrast to those martyrs who lose their lives for Jesus' sake and the gospel's sake, we'll, lie, we'll save it. He said, those who are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and evil generation of him, that is the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So there's a trade-off. There is a cost to follow Jesus, but there's a greater cost to not follow him. So in closing... Closing, is there any reward for the person who is a, a, a disciple, a true disciple? Absolutely. He or she becomes more like Jesus, and one day they're going to share in his glory. And remember, Satan promises you glory. But in the end, you'll get suffering. God, on the other hand, he promises you suffering. But in the end, that suffering turns into glory. If we confess Jesus Christ and we live for him, one day he will confess us before his Father in heaven and he will share his glory with us. And so again, it's, it's knowing who Jesus is. Having faith in him and who he said he is. And standing upon that conviction. And when you stand upon that conviction, you shall not be moved. Father, we thank you once again for your wonderful word, God. We thank you for the lessons taught here, God, in the gospel of Mark. Father, we pray that you would give us strength, God, strength to persevere, strength to endure, God. Boldness to stand before the world, Lord. Any dead fish can float downstream, God. But it takes a live one to go against the current, Lord. And right now, we are going against the current, God. Father, help us not to follow the crowd, but to follow the Lord. To not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, Lord. By the culture and by society and by the majority. but that remnant that Jesus always has and always will have. So, Father, watch over us. Protect our hearts and our minds, Lord. Help us to wear the full armor of God that we will not be fooled by the wiles of the devil, God. Because he goes about as a roaring lion. But he's been defeated. No teeth, no claws, just makes a lot of noise. And help us to draw near to you, Father, that you might draw near to us, God. Father, we thank you for the offering today. We thank you for your generosity and for taking care of us, God. And Lord, I pray you would just bless your people today and um, just watch over them and take care of us, God. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.